My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoyed this podcast, you can help me make it better in one of two ways. You can go and write a brief review on iTunes or you can simply go to interviewthefuture.com and make a donation. Today, the topic of our discussion is the relationship between big tech and surveillance in general and Palantir in particular. Some of you may be aware that Palantir is planning to become a publicly traded company and that this may be among actually the most anticipated IPOs of this year. However, today we're not going to be interviewing a venture capitalist, an analyst or a technologist. Instead, I want to bring a different point of view into this discussion. So my guest today is Jacinta Gonzalez. Jacinta is an activist based in Phoenix, who is a senior campaign organizer with Mijente and has been arrested and detained by ICE in protest to the separation of children from their parents. I believe she has a unique insight on the receiving end of companies such as Palantir and can therefore hopefully share that unique point of view with us in order to challenge it and to expand it. So, Jacinta Gonzalez, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a great pleasure to be on here with you and really looking forward to that conversation. Fantastic. I've been looking forward to this conversation myself as I was preparing for it for the last few days. So let's start with uh, something basic, something uh, at the beginning of the tape. Let's roll back the tape of time and start in the beginning. Who is Jacinta Gonzalez? Um, so I, as you described, I'm a senior campaign organizer with an organization called Mi Gente. Um, I am based here in Phoenix, Arizona, where it is extremely hot. Um, it's, yeah, been a crazy, crazy couple of days in terms of temperature. Um, and I'm an organizer. I've been organizing in the immigrant rights and criminal justice movements for over 10 years now. Um, I've organized in places like New Orleans, Louisiana, um, Sonora, Mexico, and now here in Phoenix. Um, and, you know, for me, it's, it's always really been about making sure that, um, you know, grassroots communities are able to organize and build up power to create the dignified world that with which they want to live. Um, and so it's been an, an honor and a privilege to be able to support in many organizing processes like that. Um, I'm originally from Mexico. I have a Mexican father and American mother, so always also been a little bit going going between both sides. Which part of Mexico is your dad from? Um, he's from the state of Guanajuato, from a city called San Miguel de Allende. That's where I was born and raised, and I moved to the United States when I was 16. Wow. And uh, how does or why does one become an activist? It's not like a like a job description you can apply for, is it? It's something very, very different than, you know, most other interviewees here uh, on my show who, who have a PhD or some kind of, you know, invention or technological accomplishment or discovery or scientific one, or an engineering one or some kind of an expertise like that. How does one become an activist? You know, my my 
my parents started an organization in Mexico um, dedicated also to social justice, primarily working around um, issues around gender violence, around sexual and and sexual liberation and sexual justice, um, so that folks have access to birth control and access to midwives and access to maternity clinics that are dignified. Um, so I, in some ways, I always kind of was was trained in that way to have this orientation over what is what are what are the things that communities need to be able to thrive and how do we build them up. Um, when I was in the United States, I got to meet a lot of amazing community organizers and understand this process of how to work with communities to build up membership organizations, to build up people organizations that are able to launch campaigns to change things that our society sometimes assumes just have to happen that way. That's the way they are. But actually when communities come together, they're able to one, identify the problem, but also really imagine a different way of, of approaching things and come up with different types of solutions that are really deeply rooted in people's beliefs of justice and equality and dignity. Um, and so, you know, in some ways it was kind of coincidence that I ended up in, in different circles, but I'm very grateful, particularly for the folks in New Orleans that really trained me up as an organizer and, and taught me about both the history of it in the United States, but also the history of it world, world, worldwide um, and how we can kind of take advantage of those traditions to keep building power and building a different world um, that all of our families deserve. And so so you have kind of like a very sort of a noble and commendable ethical um, motivations. But I wonder, was there a kind of a episode, personal experience uh, or an occurrence or an event which pushed you towards this? Because that's kind of, and, and you mentioned that it's kind of like a, a, a bit of an accident even, as most of our lives are often directed in one direction or another by, by events which are outside of our control and often accidents even. Uh, which is why some some scientists become scientists or or some people go into you know becoming a medical doctor or something like that so i wonder was there a personal episode was it something that happened in new orleans or before that or or that really gave you a personal fire or motivation to do that because the ethics is is very commendable but it's kind of like somewhat distant from us generally it's more theoretical right so I'm, I'm trying to find something really close to the bone here that motivated you to become who you are today. Well, I can, I can tell you a little bit about how I ended up in the, in the work that I am in today. Um, you know, when I was uh, in college, um, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans um, and hit the Gulf Coast. And so there was a lot of conversations amongst college students about, you know, going down to New Orleans, helping in the reconstruction, helping rebuild, helping demolish old, old homes, um, gut homes so that people could move back into their houses. Um, and so I went with a couple of friends from college. We got, we piled into a car and drove down from New York to, to New Orleans. Um, and when I got there, there a, a few folks told me, you know, there's an organization that is starting and they could really use bilingual folks like yourself, you should go out there and start to talk. And you know, before Katrina, New Orleans um, didn't have that many day labor corners where day laborers would stand outside to look for work. They had different hired halls, they had different systems for sure for, for the informal labor market, but they didn't have day labor corners as, as they came to be after the storm. And so 
um, my job as a volunteer was to just go out to these day labor corners and talk to workers and give them safety equipment, talk to them about wage theft, talk to them about their labor rights. And I think it was about the second or third day that I was out on the corner by myself. So it was myself as a 22-year-old woman with about 150 men talking to them about their rights. And all of a sudden I heard, Migra! And everyone ran. And I was in the middle of a nice raid on the day labor corner. Um, and, you know, the ICE agents came up to me, were intimidating me, asking me what I was doing. Um, the only idea I had at the time was my Mexican passport. So there was a series of sort of harassment and um, aggressive behavior that came from them that really kind of crystallized in my mind very early on. The relationship between workers that were helping to rebuild Katrina Post, you know, after, after the devastation and the way that police, whether it was local police or immigration authorities, were being used to kind of keep workers in a place of incredible vulnerability, um, where they weren't able to organize and actually lift up their living standards. And so it was kind of that day that I really realized, one, the importance of code switching. For me, it was so important to be able to one moment be talking to the workers and the next minute be able to be talking to the ICE agents. Um, but also the importance of building power for, for workers to have some sort of protection from these attacks. Um, and it was so inspiring to see that the way people were coming together and forming what became the Congreso de Jornaleros, the Congress of Day Laborers, where I then worked. So to me, it was actually like, and I can still remember like who I was talking to, the ICE agents, what they looked like, like all of those things are very, very clear in my mind. And I think that those were probably one of the moments that really changed direction for me and made me kind of want to commit to organizing um, and commit to organizing in New Orleans because there was such, it felt like such an important moment where if we, if we didn't fight back, if we didn't figure out a way of supporting um, local communities, that you know, outside forces were going to come in to try to like, transform it in a way that would be financially advantageous for them while kind of destroying the local panorama. And there was so much also that was happening in terms of trying to pit Latino workers, particularly undocumented workers, against you know, local Black workers. And so there was also such an opportunity to actually be building up in both communities in a way that would actually strengthen those relationships and give folks a sense and an understanding of a common fight versus divisive tactics. So what turned out to be a, a two-week uh, road trip turned into seven years of my life. Um, and then also meeting a lot of the people that I continue to organize to this day. So, you know, to me also organizing is about relationships. It's about building with people. And so to me, it's, it's no coincidence that it's like some of the few organizers that would tell me like, this is how you facilitate a meeting are still the people that I'm strategizing with today, whether it's, you know, on technology or, you know, electoral work or whatever it is, but there's kind of a, a, a shared bond and a shared camaraderie of how we approach these problems. That's a, that's a fascinating story. And unfortunately, the role of migrant workers, uh, whether uh, with respect to the recovery effort after Katrina, or in many, many other similar, similar cases, uh, has rarely been recognized, I believe. Uh, they're, you know, they're kind of rarely mentioned anywhere, even though they do play a, a very important role for a number of reasons at a number of levels. Um, but where does, so, so I, get, I get your motivation and your sort of inception story, if you will, if we can call that. But but where where does kind of the awareness of the importance of technology come into your activism and how did it come? Was it with another story or event or occurrence similar to this, perhaps? 
very similar to that and, and very much in New Orleans. You know, when, when, as you're talking about, for example, reconstruction workers that came to help rebuild after Hurricane Katrina, you know, with time, we started to see that it was not just day laborers, but it was entire families that were coming and um, starting to settle down and call New Orleans home. And so, you know, as, as communities were starting to form, you know, education institutions were closing their doors, healthcare institutions were closing their doors, economic institutions were closing their doors. There was one, one institution that always had their door, doors wide open, and that was the New Orleans prison, Orleans Parish prison. And so what we realized is that more and more day laborers were being arrested for trespassing, which really just meant looking for work on a day labor corner, um, you know, or were being, you know, arrested for any sort of opportunity that the, you know, the New Orleans Police Department has been slowly being transformed for a very long time, but has always had a reputation of being um, incredibly aggressive, incredible, like, you know, New Orleans, Louisiana has the highest per capita incarceration rate in the world. And so these issues with policing and mass incarceration are longstanding there. It's not a new problem. It's not a new phenomenon. So it wasn't any, you know, it wasn't far-fetched to understand how these systems were adapting to now include immigrants as both people that they were arresting and bringing in, but then also that within Orleans Parish Prison, you started to see a new relationship between ICE agents and the sheriff. And so they were working very, very closely together. And so, you know, the Congress of Day Laborers, our members started to organize a campaign to ask the sheriff to no longer submit to immigration hold requests and to demand a warrant in case ICE agents wanted to enter the jail. And after three years of lots of activity, a lot of pressure, a lot of organizing, um, and also a lot of constitutional violations on the side of the sheriff um, that brought on a, a huge civil rights lawsuit that we filed, um, we were actually able to get to an agreement with the sheriff that he would no longer submit to immigration hold requests, set constitutional protections, and he had one of the most progressive policies in the entire United States, and it was the first in the South. Wow. We were very excited. The community felt so empowered. It was a very beautiful moment. But then we started to see ICE retaliate against that. And the way that ICE was retaliating against that is that they would go into communities. They would go to laundromats. They would go to Bible study groups. They would go to grocery stores. They would cut off entire blocks in, within Latino neighborhood. And they would just set up checkpoints where they would stop anyone that they thought did not look like they were from here, immediately handcuff them and fingerprint them on the spot with a mobile biometric device. And so, you know, we were just kind of had, you know, a hair on fire just because we were getting calls from people in the community. They took my husband, they took my mother, they took my brother. How do we respond? But slowly and surely, we started to ask ourselves, what are these mobile biometric devices? And why are they using them in the field? And like, we've never seen them before. What, do, what, what are they for? And that really made us start to research and kind of understand, one, that the ICE office had a huge act, like, was launching a new program on these types of raids in New Orleans. And so we had over 22 members of the community, most of them undocumented, um, who did a civil disobedience action and were actually on the front page of the New York Times. And that time it was under the Obama administration. So the field office director of ICE in New Orleans was taken out. Um, and we also started to understand that these mobile biometric devices had been created for war zones. 
have been created for the war in the Middle East to create profiles on people, and now we're being brought back to the U.S. through ICE. Um, and these mobile biometric devices are called EDI. And so that How to me, EDI. EDI, are they not illegal? Uh, I mean, unless you have a warrant, my uh, my limited understanding says that you can't just stop someone on the street and fingerprint them unless you have a warrant. Well, they but once they were once their practices of racial profiling and and arresting people before they had probable cause were revealed, they started to amend the way that they would do the raids. Um, but still, they would use the mobile biometric devices in the field, um, and so. I say that to say a couple of things. One is ICE as an agency, ICE as a policing agency from its inception was created to be a police force to enforce immigration laws, which are supposed to be civil, but that's a whole other different conversation. But it's a police force to enforce immigration laws that is accountable really only to the Department of Homeland Security and therefore the president. And so any sort of accountability over this agency over the years has been nearly, it's almost impossible. And I can tell you another story of my own personal time being arrested by ICE as a U.S. citizen. And I can tell you there was no real form of legal action for me to take because of the ways that the laws are constructed. And because ICE agents know this, they're able to act with impunity in the field. And that's why having extra technology just gives them more force to conduct that type of unethical behavior as opposed to kind of holding them accountable to some sort of standard. So um, you have no recourse? I'm sorry? You don't have any recourse? You don't have recourse. I mean, because of decisions that the Supreme Court has, has taken, in many cases, holding federal agents accountable for unconstitutional behavior is incredibly difficult. They used to be called what you would call Bivens claims, but because of a lot of decisions that have been taken, it's almost impossible to file them now. So people don't have recourse to hold individual agents accountable, and we all know what the policy in place for them right now is, which is just terror at all costs. Um, that is the strategy that this administration has decided to take. Um, we have people in charge of both the Department of Homeland Security and ICE who have not passed through any sort of confirmation from the Senate. Um, they're just all acting directors in this moment. And so there really is no sort of form of oversight that is actually uh, responsive to the type of moment we're in or the type of technology that they have the, the power to use. Right. Let's go back to the technology because I want to follow that thread throughout. Sure. So, so the technology, as I was saying, you know, the, the first time that I really started to realize this was with these mobile biometric devices. But over the years, what we've started to realize is, you know, ICE as an agency is trying to deport, is trying to identify, surveil, detain, and deport as many people as it can, up to the 12 million undocumented people who are estimated to, to live in the U.S. Um, and so the way that they've kind of tried to conduct this mission has been by trying to figure out how to create force multipliers, is the way that they talk about it. So for a very long time, what they would do is simply go to local police departments, local jails, and try to recruit these types of agencies to help create a bigger dragnet. But over time, we started to realize that ICE is getting basically support from other places. Because many times when ICE agents are going to do a workplace raid, when ICE agents are going to do community raids, and we've seen the increase of them going door to door and home to home, 
many times they would knock on a door and have information that people were very bewildered about how they got it, right? I've never had any interact. People would tell us, I've never had any interaction with local police. How did they know my address? They came here and knew who my cousin was. How did they know? I just bought a new car and went, you know, had just put license plates on it. How did they know that that was my vehicle? Um, and so what we started to understand was, and started to unpack, and we did a, a huge research project that then led to a, a report that we pulled out called Who's Behind ICE? The Tech and Data Companies Fueling Deportations. But through that, we're able to really map out that there's a whole slew of, of tech companies that are providing cloud services, data analytics, data broker services, particular facial recognition technology, tools and gadgets on the ground, different ways of being able to intervene in people's phone signals. Um, they're using ankle shackles in a widespread level to be able to track people. So we started to understand that there really was this huge network um, and huge infrastructure of tech and data companies that were really kind of building up ICE's capacity to not only detain and, and deport people, but also to surveil people both domestically and abroad. Fantastic. So before we jump into the nitty gritty of how or what are those companies that are providing that kind of infrastructure you're talking about, let's just break down first what is ICE, because many of our uh, viewers and listeners may not be familiar with ICE. What is ICE? ICE stands for Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and they are the police force that is in charge of enforcing immigration laws in this country. They're just one of multiple agencies that are created. Um, to give folks a little bit of history and background, before 2001, um, ICE was, or immigration was uh, organized in a very different way. And so after 9-11, uh, the Bush administration decided to create the Department of Homeland Security and within that create different agencies. So they created CBP, that's in charge of the border. They created, uh, there's USCIS, which is kind of in charge of filing for people's visas or adjustments of status. Um, and then you have ICE as a policing agency. Within ICE, there's a couple of different departments. They have ERO, Enforcement and Removal Operations, or HSI, Homeland Security Investigations. But in reality, they are all ICE agents um, and they all conduct very similar activities. Okay, very cool. So, uh, and by the way, as a side note, speaking of, of kind of that, well, mine was like a little bit that a lot after that period, maybe a decade after that period. You know, in 2011, I was accepted to go to Singularity University in California, in uh, Silicon Valley, uh, in Mountain View, California, for three months. Uh, 80 people out of the whole world. Uh, maybe we were like, I don't know, four or five Canadians all together. And uh, I got detained at the border by the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, originally for five hours, eventually it became 12 hours. Um, and multiple times I was told I'm not going. And, you know, I have two passports. I have a Bulgarian passport and I have a Canadian passport. My wife is also a dual citizen, but she's an American Canadian citizen. And, you know, because half of her family, her mom is from Rochester, New York, and half of her family is across the border, uh, we've been driving for the last 20 years from Toronto to Rochester and back, I don't know, hundreds of times. It's, it's a, uh, a one-hour, 15-minute drive to the border, 
two two and a half hours to visit our cousins and i've never had any problems but for whatever reason on that occasion here we go right and i was and they were asking me utterly idiotic questions like for example why do you shave your head um why do you have vitamins um why do you have a yoga mat with you these were the kind of profound questions that, that, that they were asking me. By the way, the agent who was doing the questioning was Gonzalez. Never, never, never forget that agent because she told me I'm not going. Uh, and um, uh, in the end, they told me and I told him, look, guys, I've been to the US, I don't know, 50, 100 times in the last 10 years. My wife is, is an American citizen. Uh, what's the problem? And they told me, son, the guy told me, another guy told me, son, it is just you and me now. Moses himself cannot part the sea for you unless I say so. And he said, if I say you're not going, the president of the United States cannot say that you can come in. So anyway, the, the funniest part of this whole story was that, and I wrote a whole article on my blog about it, was that as soon as the shift changed, because the shift lasts only, I don't know, eight hours, 10 hours. As soon as the shift changed, the new shift let me right through. So no one can tell me what the first shift didn't like in me, how the second shift, and I don't obviously, I don't have a criminal history or anything of that sort, but there we go. So that's a side note for, for the, the security and the expertise and, and the knowledge of the, of the DHS. And I think they were Googling me at the time because I already had a blog and a podcast and all of that. But now talk to us about, so you, You've told us what ICE is, what function it serves, um, and you, you, you've kind of started unraveling or uh, removing the curtain on the system behind ICE. So start telling us a little more about uh, who is Palantir, what is Palantir, and how does it fit within the ICE operations, and how crucial uh, or vital is it to, to those operations? Well, <clears throat> so as I, as I was saying, you know, we, once we started to understand how ICE was changing its behavior um, and changing also the money, right? Because every year ICE's budget continues to grow and grow and grow. And so we were also starting to understand that for tech companies and What's data What's their budget now, roughly, if you if you have any clue, by the way? Sorry I, to interrupt. I don't have the exact numbers on their budget. I do know that there's been a lot of... The last couple of weeks in appropriations have been very interesting around the budget because there are a lot of things that are kind of shifting in this moment. They're asking for more resources for some things, but numbers are going down in others. So I'm not sure where things have, have landed and can kind of follow up with you once we have those, those concrete numbers. Um, but what we have seen is the trend overall has been that their, their budget continues to grow. Um, and particularly under this administration saw that there was sort of more and more opportunities for that and have been seeing how different tech and data companies see that as a great starting point um, in terms of trying to get a hold of federal contracts that then will lead to a longer line of even more lucrative federal contracts. Um, so we uh, partnered up with a corporate research firm um, that specializes in this type of research and kind of asked them a couple of key questions based on what we were seeing in the field. 
Um, we worked with different immigration attorneys, with different advocates to kind of create those, those questions. Um, and, you know, from there put out this report, who's behind ICE, the tech and data companies fueling deportation. And we came up with a couple of really interesting findings. You know, the first was that, and one of that I was very unaware of, is that most of ICE's uh, cloud services, whether it's for their databases, for their policing technologies, for their files, are through AWS, through Amazon. <laughs> and so, you know, who's providing the invisible cloud background for the policing of immigrants under this administration was Amazon. Um, and this news came about just as Amazon was trying to bring their headquarters to New York City. Um, and so it became very important for us to participate in a big coalition of groups that were talking about, you know, Amazon's consequences on gentrification, on housing costs, on jobs, on taxes, um, on worker rights, um, on retaliation against organizing uh, for workers in these sort of plants. But sort of the information that we were able to uncover gave folks another, another uh, thing to throw, right, at the company um, in terms of being able to shut down their headquarters going to New York. Um, so it was very exciting to kind of be able to, 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 help, to help fuel the, the movement in this way um, and being able to shed light on what these companies are truly doing and being able to connect it to other movements that are seeing other things that these big companies are doing. Because we know that the, it's not one impact, right? It's actually multiple impacts and requires multiple organizing strategies to, to, to face off of it. So that was one of the things that we found. But then we also found that Palantir... Um, by ICE's own definition, is considered mission critical because of a program that they created, which is the Integrated Case Management System. And this system is kind of intended to be a place where different surveillance tactics and, place and strategies can be placed so you can hold all of your surveillance in one place, that's your case management system, and use this to kind of quickly prosecute people. Um, and we started to see that this conversation between having ICE as an agency and the U.S. Attorney's Office prosecuting people was starting to happen more and more in sync and was almost a little bit of a foreshadowing of what we saw with the zero tolerance policy at the border, right? Where you wanted to have folks that were picked up from immigration quickly transferred to the marshals for prosecution from the U.S. Attorney's Office. That's where they would take their children away and that's where they would be able to create the separation. So for us, it was something that was important to be tracking um, and since then, we've uncovered that a lot of things are interoperable with the integrated case management system so that ICE can, for example, use Clearview AI technology to do facial recognition and have it play, put in one place. Um, we've seen, for example, the tip line that they use that actually, you know, has been encouraging folks to call in and, and report tips on workers or report tips on their neighbors. Um, it goes through Palantir through the Falcon tip line to be able to be integrated into these things. Um, and then we started to look at who are the main data brokers for ICE. And we found that for both ICE and Palantir, data brokers like Thomson Reuters or RELX or LexisNexis are some of the main agencies selling information to them. And so my, many attorneys or maybe many of your listeners might be thinking, I thought Thomson Reuters was a, you know, legal research tool <laughs> that just helped me look at cases or helped me figure out the best defense for my immigrant client. But turns out that they're also buying, you know, both data from many, many sources, including utility bills, including, you know, different um, 
economic or financial agencies that are, you know, like if things go to collections, that's the first place where data gets kind of sent back. Um, and so these are the data brokers. And then the Palantir helps do the data analytics to try to figure out what information is useful for ICE agents as they're surveilling, detaining, and deporting people in the field. Um, and so these are just some of the companies that we've been able to identify. As you and your listeners probably know, there is a very long list of, of actors in this. Um, and so for us, it's been really important to understand that it isn't just about one company or one actor. It is actually about a system. But within that, there are actors that have taken particular roles or kind of helped create this, this type of economy. And for those reasons, you know, they're kind of in the spotlight in this conversation at this time. Yeah, one actor that has a direct, uh, I, I don't want to say a finger, I don't want to say a hand, I want to say two hands involvement in the creation of much of the industry nowadays, of course, Peter Thiel, who is a, 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 an original founder, not only of Palantir, but an, a bunch of other companies in that industry. I previously interviewed uh, Sean Gorley, uh, and I recommend uh, p- uh, viewers and listeners who haven't seen that interview, go check it out, because uh, Sean Gorley, Gorley's, one of Sean Gorley's uh, uh, startup companies got uh, angel capital from Peter Thiel, and their um, main clients are in the intelligence community all over the world. And he talks about uh, his main message from from that interview was that uh, if the, if you don't own the algorithm, the algorithm owns you, basically. <laughs> and of course, Peter Thiel owns most of those algorithms nowadays. Uh, also, people who haven't uh, checked out, there's a fantastic documentary on, on Netflix. I forget the name, but basically it's about the story of how Peter Thiel takes out Gawker Media uh, by uh, basically bank- bankrolling Hulk Hogan's uh, uh, legal case against Gawker Media and then puts them out of business to the uh, effect of like $65 million or something like that, simply because he took that as a personal vendetta because they outed him as being gay and he swore to, to to avenge himself which he did i don't know seven or eight years later by supporting uh bankrolling hulk hogan's case against gawker media uh and he's also the guy who says that the competition is for losers in his book uh i think the book is called zero or one or something and he's the, the guy who says that uh, democracy is incompatible with freedom. So very interesting pers- uh, uh, individual. I wanted to interview him on my show. Uh, haven't had that chance, uh, doubt that I ever will. Uh, but going back to the topic, let's dig in deeper into all of those interesting leads that you just shared with us. So let's, let's take it one by one. Let's start first with Palantir. So that just to, to, to make it clear, is that the software program that you're referring to that basically allows Palantir or their clients to pull in data from a diversity of sources, things such as social media profiles like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, you name it, but also phone bills, utility bills, uh, also uh, uh, police or other legal cases and reports, mortgage payments, bank data, uh, even I heard uh, uh, traffic tickets, uh, speeding tickets, 
uh, all kinds of seemingly non-relevant data, which they kind of aggregate into a single file and then provide it a cost to their clients. Yeah, so I mean, they have, so that the, the integrated case management system is one of the thing, the contracts that they have with ICE. The second is for their Falcon product, which allows them to see relationships, right? Um, to input data, to be able to, to, to be looking at social media, et cetera, to then be able to be able to do networks and, and relationship mapping. Um, these are also things that we know and, and, you know, precisely for the reasons that you just described, <laughs> we know that Peter Thiel is someone who is very litigious, who is very, um, who uses slap lawsuits in many ways to try to silence organizers and activists. Knows um, how so to hold a grudge for years and years after and, and go for the kill. I, I was just going to say, I, so I don't know if, know if I'm help doing you any favors with getting Teal onto your <laughs> show. Um, <laughs> but also just to be very clear that we're, we're actually very um, specific about the things that we know and the things that we don't know. Um, and the truth is that it's not on us to be able to reveal these things. It actually should be on the government to reveal these things and these companies to reveal these things, particularly as they're going public. So we're very curious to see what is going to be um, publicly revealed about their contracts um, as they're trying to figure out how to uh, make money off of, of the stock market. Um, but all of that to just sort of say that there's the things that I know and I will be very clear on the things that we don't know, but I can tell you what we've been seeing on the in the field in terms of how ICE agents are acting and what we know about like connecting some of these things. Sure. Um, but you know, one of the things that I can say that I'm not sure will be connected to Falcon, but I am very concerned about how it connects to ICE, is that what we started to see is as there's been a rise in surveillance and this idea of being able to map up networks, that that both can be one way of like mapping out families of undocumented people to figure out how to go, you know, how to detain them and, and deport them, but it also is a way of mapping out organizers and folks who are in any way, shape, or form organizing against this administration's position. Um, you know, Peter Thiel not only is, you know, making these technologies or helping through Founders Fund to fund more agencies like Palantir, but he's also getting directly involved in politics to ensure that you have people in power that are actually promoting a xenophobic and anti-immigrant agenda, right? Thiel was one of Trump's very first supporters and, and you know, rode hard for him, um, raising a lot of money for him in, in, in the last election. And now we're seeing that he's also throwing a lot of his millions behind Chris Kobach, um, who is also, you know, in his Senate run, knowing how anti-immigrant he is, knowing that he's been promoting a lot of these policies. And so we also see kind of how linked this idea of both politics and the technology are. It's not that it's just like, oh, coincidentally, right, that this, these things are happening, but actually as the administration is being more and more aggressive with these things, they know that that means that there's more opportunities to get contracts that are gonna line their pockets. Um, so it's kind of the, the, the way that these things are sort of linked. Um, but Palantir's programs have been used, for example, we've been able to document, again, when, when we saw there was a huge immigration raid in Mississippi, there were almost 700 poultry plant workers were arrested, um, in many instances, leaving both ch children without both of their parents. Um, we particularly were working on one case of a woman who we helped her write an op-ed, um, and she was deported even though she was breastfeeding her, her seven-month child. Um, 
So you had incredible instances of abuse. And what we were able to figure out from the documentation is that the, the tip line, again, that went through Palantir was one of the main sources that was used in this investigation. Um, we also have documentation of, it, of Palantir products being used in an investigation that deported sponsors of unaccompanied minor children to the U.S., um, kind of, and in this way, sort of ensuring that children are being held for longer um, in these child prisons. Um, without anybody able to take custody of them because Palantir Technologies is used as a way of being able to show that they're undocumented and therefore deporting them. So there's a couple of different instances if folks want to kind of look through the, the details and, and see the reporting. Folks can go to, to notechforice.com backslash resources and there's a couple of, of, of blog posts and documentation with all of the FOIAs with the direct sources so that people can kind of see how the technology is being used. Yeah, I'm going to bring our conversation to your your websites and stuff towards the end of our conversation. Uh, in the meantime, I, in the meantime, just wanted to say the name of the documentary on Netflix that that I was speaking of is called Nobody Speak: Trials of the Free Press. Really recommend it highly. It came out in 2017 and it was uh, uh, highly regarded at the Sundance Film Festival. Um, meanwhile, of course, uh, just just for, for some clarity, perhaps uh, two other interesting details. First of all, Peter Thiel is one of those guys who is ready for all occasions, however things may turn out. So he has a sort of a, an end of the world uh, bunker uh, in, in New Zealand. Uh, but the, the even perhaps more interesting part is that the company Palantir, and by the way, I've actually talked to a number of guys from Palantir when I was in Silicon Valley for two and a half months. We had a number of meetings with them and they're all very nice guys, super smart people usually. Uh, but the name Palantir of course, of course comes from Lord of the Rings, I think, right? Uh, and it's like those crystal balls or the all-seeing eye of Zauron or, or which one was it? Like the, the crystal balls that allow you to see and kind of uh, over here and, and sort of surveil what's happening in other places of, of, of the world at, this, at that time? Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the reference from what I understand myself. Yeah, so, so, so there you go. They, they're following the name very well. Um, let's talk a little bit about why should people care about tech surveillance in general and Palantir in particular, because someone could say, well, look, Hasinda, so far you're talking about undocumented immigrants, right? And of course, we know they're all bad amigos. They're all uh, criminals. And of course, we know, I mean, the president said it, so it must be true. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, most of the audience of this podcast are not undocumented immigrants, why should they or we or anyone care about uh, tech surveillance at the border and Palantir? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons that people should, should care and should be paying attention. I think one of the things that we've been kind of, we've been raising the alarm about the Department of Homeland Security as a massive police force at the disposal of the president for a very long time now. With or without technology, we, we think it's incredibly uh, concerning and, and needs to be um, dismantled. 
what we're starting to see now, and for example, the conversation that has been coming up the last couple of weeks because of Border Patrol's presence in Portland, is just how these things actually continue to be normalized and push the boundary. So what I was describing was technologies that were designed for war zones being brought into the U.S. because under the guise of protecting the homeland and, you know, immigration and customs enforcement. Very quickly, that can be taken to any city, right, to be used to retaliate against anyone who's protesting. And in a blink of an eye, we can actually see that used en masse on more people. And so what we see is that there's actually this creeping effect that happens as these technologies are first designed for one purpose, but then because they're looking for different markets or actually start to become normalized and used in different places, and in that way are becoming a violation of everyone's rights. So for example, you know, again, Border Patrol is now in Portland. If they're willing to treat white mothers, if they're willing to treat them that way, imagine how they're, will, how they're treating people at the border, especially black and brown women that aren't US citizens. And imagine again, what they're doing with technology that they're not reporting to us at all on. So what we think they're doing versus what they're actually doing is incredibly different. And if we don't start to pay attention now, we're not gonna pay attention until it's too late. So that's one of the main reasons that I think we actually have to be incredibly concerned is because what is the government doing and what are the government police forces doing with this information? But on the other side, we also have to understand that at this time, private companies basically have more power and more information on us than governments do sometimes without any sort of infrastructure to hold them accountable. We do not have adequate privacy laws in this country. There's actually no framework to actually regulate whose data it is, who it belongs to, how it's sold and what it's used for. Once it's sold once or twice, there's kind of this idea of it just gets lost into the ether. But all of these companies are actually designing and creating systems based off of information without any of our understanding. So you might not be concerned about Palantir having information on immigrants, but are you concerned given that they have a contract with the census or the fact that they have a contract with the IRS? Or what about the fact that they have a contract with Health and Human Services, with HHS, which is now controlling all of the country's COVID data without going through the CDC. So for us, we're concerned from the, the vantage point of what is this gonna do to immigrants? But actually, if you take a couple of steps back and you understand that technology companies not only are, are, are making money off of this, but actually they know more about who we are, what our day-to-day -day life is, and what are the vulnerabilities in our system than anyone else? And they're not accountable to anyone but Peter Thiel. So that makes me incredibly nervous. And, you know, I would hope that it would make others nervous too. Yeah. And uh, just to reiterate, the two points are, you know, I grew up uh, behind the Iron Curtain in the Eastern Bloc. And we had what's called uh, state service or state security which was kind of spying on the population, making sure we are in line with the official Communist Party line. Uh, in East Germany, they had the Stasi, uh, which was one of the more powerful ones, just like the KGB in Russia. And what those tech companies have on each of us today uh, is like the ultimate wet, wet dream come true that, that 
any of those secret service organizations could never even imagine having so much access to such an abundance of such personalized and accurate, up-to-date, in-time, real data that it's just simply unbelievable. But the other point is also very, very important, and that's the process of how something gets introduced into a war zone like Iraq and Afghanistan to help our troops, to protect our troops, etc. Then it gets... You know, those companies look to broaden up their markets and their clients, so they bring it to the border, again, in the name of protecting the homeland. So they're using it against, uh, you know, illegal immigrants, bad, bad uh, hombres, or, or I forget what the president says, right? To protect us from them, from the criminals. And then eventually it gets normalized and starts getting used domestically everywhere across the USA against the, the mothers of Portland or any other protest that currently we have ongoing many of all over the United States of America, right? So, so you have this kind of militarization and normalization of these tools that become available everywhere. And as you pointed out with very, very little oversight or awareness or, 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 or education of, of, of how the systems are created, who's paying for them, who's using them, for what purposes, against whom, and so on. So tell me something, you, you touched a little bit upon it, but that's very interesting. Is Palantir now tasked with creating the centralized COVID-19 database, and what would that say, if, if that's the case? Your, 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 your guess is as good as mine. Um, you know, the, the, the protect the PROTECT program that um, Palantir has created for HHS was a no-bid contract that they got. So it went to them and no one else. Um, there's very little information that's known about the contract, how it's going to work, what the data, how it's going to be held, all of those things, which is why both Senator Elizabeth Warren, but also the Congressional Hispanic Caucus have written a congressional inquiry to Palantir and HHS trying to get information in writing about these contracts. And so they still, I don't think, have all of the information they've asked for. There hasn't been full transparency. You know, we're going to continue to work with our members of Congress and, and the Senate to try to get that information. But there's still a lot that we don't know, um, which is, again, like why it's so important for the folks to be asking. But you can imagine if Congress has to be asking what data Palantir has on us. Um, again, it just sends chills down my spine to try to understand, like, what actually has to happen for us to really understand how this information is being used. Right, and, and especially now when you add the COVID-19 data on top of that, uh, which of course, as we all know, any data has multiple purposes or uses. So if, if something can be sold to the public as, as you know, to protect our health or against the, the pandemic and so on, then the next moment it could be used to, uh, uh, identify and, uh, you know, uh, arrest and then deport uh, illegal immigrants or against the mothers of Portland or any other person uh, simply because Peter Thiel didn't like them or, or for whatever other reason. <laughs> and as we know, Peter Thiel is not the most uh, forgiving person <laughs> in the world <laughs> or magnanimous person, uh, we should say. Uh, but there's also another kind of stinky connection, I would say, uh, between Palantir and Cambridge Analytica and drones for the Department of Defense. Is there not? I mean, that's the, the, 
the unfortunate truth is that our concerns around Palantir's work with immigration and customs enforcement is almost just the tip of the, uh, the, the evil iceberg in terms of some of the activities that they're participating in. Um, you know, well, like, yeah, Palantir has had its hands in a lot of horrible things that have happened. Um, one of the first is, as most folks might know about Cambridge Analytica, folks follow that story really closely when some of the employees talk about the first place where they got the ideas to do a lot of this. They mention folks from Palantir. Um, similarly, what we've seen in different instances, for example, there was times of retaliation against um, journalists and surveillance of journalists. Palantir was involved. Um, we've seen that, for example, when Project Maven was being designed within Google, of trying to figure out these drones. There was worker organizing internally that shut down the program. Palantir was more than happy to take it back up. Um, and so what we've seen consistently, um, and you can see this in, in their own interviews, you know, again, like you were talking about some of the folks that work at Palantir, there's a lot of, you know, really intelligent people that work there from both lines of the political spectrum, right? Their CEO, Alex Karp, talks openly about, you know, being liberal and, and being a Democrat. Um, but he also talks very openly about their products are used to kill people. And so what? Um, and so what we actually see is this very cavalier attitude um, towards human rights. There's this idea that as long as X, Y, or Z thing around the data is legal, that the implications of how that information is used to kill people, to detain people, to separate them from their families, to deport them, um, in many cases to their death, is sort of secondary or not relevant to them. I think that's what's really important about actually making more complex um, and more nuanced conversations around ethics. Because many times these companies, what they've done is they've created these boards of academics that will kind of spin things in different ways to kind of let them wash their hands of the actual real-time impact of what their technology is doing um, on the ground. Because we have to understand that this is not theoretical, this is not abstract. This actually is impacting real people. Um, and many times people don't want to actually have that conversation. Yeah, and uh, that reminds me of another uh, interview that I did, by the way, uh, four years ago with Stephen E. Arnold on search engines and intelligence gathering. Uh, a fascinating 90-minute interview. I recommend people go check it out. Uh, and basically one of the most uh, shocking uh, thinks was that Stephen basically said, look, I'm interested in, because I asked him, are you not comfortable uh, doing the things that you have been doing? He's now retired, but uh, he's been doing incredible things for 30 or 40 years. Uh, with, let's say, at best, gray ethical implications, if not outright unethical. And he said, you know what? I am just concerned about solving interesting problems. Give me interesting problems. I am happy to solve them. I am not concerned about other things. I work for us, for our government, for our country. And he's proud of that. Right. So that was kind of chilling and scaring to me. And I think uh, uh, and he was very open about it, by the way. And I think Palantir is, a, is, a, is an absolutely great example of of a place where you have kind of a scientific and technological prowess 
totally divorced by basic ethics and, and integrity or, or, or just basic ethical consideration of the implications of your work. Uh, and of course, you have billions of dollars at stake at the same time, especially now when they're about to go public. Uh, so, so you can, you can see how that's kind of like the poster boy of, of many, many things going wrong in, in the big tech industry. But, uh, let me ask you this though, because it's not only Palantir, is it? You, you also mentioned how Amazon Web Services is hosting ICE. Uh, tell me a little bit more about Amazon and where does Amazon fit? within this whole picture, and then we're going to move on to other big tech companies such as Google, Microsoft, and so on. Well, right before we, we move on to that point, I just want to say one thing, because I, I do think, you know, sometimes when people just want to look at one problem at hand and just solve one thing, they're forgetting about how that one thing is connected to everything else. And the one thing that I think we can actually agree on is that Sometimes we don't know what the consequences are going to be in that moment. And that's why we actually have the perspective of constantly reevaluating and reassessing. And particularly around the way that tech and data companies are partnering with police departments, I really hope that folks can actually take a really critical look at this point in time, at the history of policing, of how racist it has been, and who has had to sort of pay the price of a lot of the ways that policing is both overly violent and overly racist against certain communities, um, and understand that the technology is actually just compounding that problem, not resolving it. And so it's actually making it more complicated and giving police departments, whether they're federal agencies or local police departments, more power to then go against communities, whether they're black, brown, you know, immigrant, gender non-conforming, women, like, there are so many people that are so vulnerable to this type of abuse and technology, what it's doing is actually giving them more power and more ability to do that type of abuse, not trying to rein it in. And so it's important to not only understand the little problem at hand, but actually the whole context and the history of it to understand what the implications are going to be of those technologies. Yeah, I had a, on the podcast, I think her name was Kathy O'Neill, and I read her book called Weapons of Mass Destruction, which is a fantastic book. Um, about how, you know, uh, algorithms are opinion uh, uh, in code, basically. That's one of the, the, the kind of uh, most insightful things that I remember from that interview is that algorithms are absolutely not impartial. Uh, and, you know, she, Kathy goes through the, the whole story of telling her story of how she tried to escape from ethics into math uh, because everything is clear, black and white, right and wrong, et cetera, et cetera. And how after working as a quant on Wall Street and then a bunch of other places, how she discovered that no, actually math, the way it's being used can be a weapon of math destruction. And it has been. Uh, and how, you know, uh, uh, it can be racist and how people can be paying higher interest rates if they belong to a particular group or get uh, longer uh, sentences. Uh, recommendations uh, via the, the software used by judges to re to evaluate uh, offenders of, of their uh, ability or likelihood of uh, reoffending and, and stuff like that. So highly recommend that book to Weapons of Math Destruction. But so, okay, so, so we know, and the interesting thing is again, 
if I remember, uh, Jeff Bezos is a was he an orphan adopted when he was like three or four years old, and I think he's Cuban on top of it, or originally he's also Latino, right? Uh, I think Jeff Bezos is originally from Cuba. I would have to look that up. I did not know that fact. I, I'm not a hundred percent on this, so don't quote me. But that's my understanding: is that that maybe he was, if I remember, he was adopted when he was three or four by a guy called Miguel, or maybe his adopted father was Cuban uh, immigrant called Miguel, uh, and then in Texas, uh, and yeah. Anyway, I escaped, but that's interesting because, of course, Jeff Bezos is Amazon, right? And so Amazon is not only ICE uh, via Amazon Web Services, but also the NSA, the CIA, the FBI. Everyone is now hosting at, uh, at Amazon Web Services, right? So tell us where else does Amazon fit within that system, other than hosting, perhaps? Well, Amazon, I think it's, it's, it's one that's important to understand is hosting and its history of its hosting. Because what we started to be able to track was that starting in 2010, Amazon lobbyists in D.C. started to push this idea of, you know, having cloud services and having cloud-first programs. Um, and through that, started creating this federal authorization system where people had to have FedRAMP authorizations to be able to hold these. And Amazon has many more than most companies, right? You have companies like Google or others have, I think it's like in the 30s, and they have over 100. So you really start to see how they've been really concentrating a lot of power and having a big hold off of those services. And that has really made us take a closer look at this revolving door between lobbyists, tech companies, and the federal government. So you'll constantly have a rotation, and that's how many of many times they're able to secure these huge contracts. Um, but Amazon has also, um, not on their cloud services, but on their through their um, main offices, been actually one exploring facial recognition technology, so recognition, and also the ring doorbells. And so, you know, recognition technology is, is one of the many forms of, of facial recognition technology out there. There's been a huge debate around how to be how it should be used. Um, many folks have been asking for bans, especially from the use of policing authorities, for example, when they use the body cameras, because we see very quickly how body cameras can go from being something that is uh, that was initially intended to bring accountability to the police force can very quickly be turned into a mass surveillance machinery um, that would actually be very detrimental to communities. Um, so that has been one place where there's been a lot of pushback. But now what we're seeing is that there's over 1,400 local police departments that also have relationships with the Ring database um, so that people are kind of sharing the information from their doorbells with the police department. In this way, also expanding kind of the surveillance state and kind of working with local police departments. Many times, again, police departments that will have issues with racial profiling, that will have issues with, with extreme violence, that will have you know, police officers on the forest that are murdering people without any sort of accountability. Um, and these, this information is being funneled into those systems. Um, and so we see that there's been a lot of different efforts in different parts of the country to be pushing back against Amazon's connection with police. Um, it, is, it is very unfortunate that this moment, a lot of these companies have been using them as ways of kind of putting out these broad statements 
of standing together with, with you know, the movement for Black Lives, saying that they believe that Black Lives Matter. And yet when you actually look at their business practices, they continue to be donating to police uh, foundations. They continue to be using their technologies to strengthen police departments. And they continue to be working with federal agencies like ICE. Two other interesting occasions. Uh, sorry, I was a little bit distracted because I was trying to uh, fact check my claims about Jeff Bezos's early life. And so basically, uh, he was born on 12th of January 1964 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. His birth name is Jeffrey Preston Jorgensen. He's the son of Jacqueline and Ted Jorgensen, but his parents divorced. And when he was four years old, his mother remarried to a guy got called Miguel Bezos. And I think this guy is a Cuban immigrant. Uh, so, so I think that's how he gets that connection. That's still not 100 percent. But uh, so then he moved from Albuquerque to Miami, Florida and, and all of that. Anyway, um, two other uh, cases, controversial cases, uh, to say the least, if not outright scandalous in the, the last couple of years were first uh, the pitching of facial recognition software to police uh, um, uh, forces all over the United States. But, but secondly was the, the, the scandal surrounding the Amazon ring cameras, which is, which is again connected to the police forces because in many cases what was happening, Amazon was kind of very uh, wittily and smartly tricking police officer to become their salespeople by giving them free ring cameras that the police officers would go around and give away for free in the communities. And then they would have the app to go and lock in, uh, log in anytime they want and basically surveil and monitor without warrant or watch what's happening anytime they want. And by the way, most of that originally was totally unencrypted. So available to be hacked and used and abused by any hacker for any reason, for any purpose. And only after the scandal, they started encrypting that information. Right. So that, that's just two other um, examples. Let's talk about other big tech companies, though, because I think the second largest uh, in terms of hosting services after Amazon is Microsoft. And actually, recently they were fighting about uh, this $10 billion Department of Defense contract and, you know, Amazon won it and then Trump said it was unfair or blah, 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 this and that. So now, uh, actually, no, what happened was Microsoft won it and Amazon is suing for improper interference by the commander in chief, right? So something like that or biased uh, 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 assessment and evaluation, right? So Microsoft won it. So tell us where does Microsoft fit in ICE, what kind of services they provide? You know, we've, there's, so they also provide some cloud services. Um, and there's been different connections that, that Microsoft has had with different programs. We have not focused on them as much um, in terms of our federal work, but we have seen them, for example, like you're saying, come up a bunch in our work with Chicago, for example. So as part of the No Tech for ICE campaign, we've done, been doing you know, research at a federal scale to understand how ICE works. But now we've also started to work with local community organizations to start to understand what surveillance um, infrastructure exists with local police departments. Because one, that's one way that people can actually are able to kind of get in and, and think about policing in their city. And it's important for folks to not be thinking about, 
to for be forgetting about surveillance, but also many times that's how information is transferred from a local level to ICE authorities, right, is through using the same technologies. Like one example of that is the clear database that's run by Thomson Reuters. Like local cities will use it, but then also the federal system will use it and in that way kind of share information. Um, but so Microsoft is, yeah, one of many companies that, that has some contracts, but we haven't sort of been, we haven't found anything that we've been kind of targeting. There was a protest at Microsoft at some point. I remember reading about it, maybe, I don't know, time is flying by nowadays, I'm losing track of it, but maybe 16 months ago or so, uh, people at Microsoft were protesting specifically its services and software contract with ICE. And that was happening specifically around that time when children are being separated from their parents, right? Uh, and at the same time, of course, the, the Google Maven protest was happening at Google's headquarters, uh, right? And in 2011, I actually went and visited all those places, Microsoft, Cisco, Google, Tesla, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, so uh, um, yeah, there, there was protests happening there at Microsoft too, so they surely had contracts there. But you've mentioned Thomson Reuters now multiple times. Tell us a little bit more about not only Thomson Reuters specifically, but also what kind of function do the data brokers uh, serve into this system? How's that work? Where do they get the data? Do they pay for it? And who do they sell it to, etc.? How's that work? You know, data brokers are such a crucial piece of this entire system, and yet one of the parts that is the hardest to decipher, to be very honest with you. Yeah, because um, if we, you don't have the data, the system doesn't work, right? The system doesn't work, um, but also how people get a hold of the data and where the data is created and how it kind of is transferred. It's so very sketchy. It's kind of like derivatives. Nobody it, knows nobody understands and nobody's guilty when the whole thing goes down right like derivatives like the 2008 collapse it's one yes i i'm very enjoying that 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 metaphor that comparison um but yeah it's been one of the things that has been the trickiest because you know a lot of what we're trying to piece together is things that are anecdotal right Someone will tell me, I didn't pay, the only thing that was in my name in this address was my cable bill. How did they get a hold of it? So then tracking that like all the way through, it isn't like there's a, a direct line where you can see who took that information, sold it to whom, and how it passed hands. Um, and so we're actually doing a lot of uh, in-depth research right now to try to find out how that information works. Um, but Thomson Reuters uh, has created what they call the clear database. They're the clear platform um, that ICE uses particularly to also be able to surveil people's vehicles. And so one, one article that I would really recommend that folks uh, look up is how ICE, uh, how ICE identifies their target in the, in the data age, I think it is, by Mackenzie Funk. Um, and it's kind of, a, it's an in-depth article that really just tells you about, for example, some small towns in, in upstate in, in the northern part of, of Washington state and how ICE just basically is sitting outside of people's homes and tracking people's license plates and through that being able to track people where they're going, where they live, and from there decide to, to detain and deport people. 
And so we've seen a huge rise uptick, for example, in, in, in automated license plate readers, right? Different cities are using these um, sometimes to give parking tickets, sometimes to do whatever it is that the local city does. But then it's kind of being used in this bigger uh, way to be able to create a bigger system to map people out. And it's a system that not only ICE has access to, but also Border Patrol has access to. And so particularly concerning as Border Patrol agents are going into cities across the U.S. to be helping with retaliation against organizers and community activists, um, we think that that's a, there's a lot of concern in terms of how that works. And what we've been also been able to see is that Thomson Reuters has particular people that are Thomson Reuters employees that actually sit in ICE offices to help process all of this data for ICE. And they're starting to expand that to include social media. Um, and so they're starting to do social media observing to be able to do all of this. Um, and you know, the last thing that I'll just say is that the, the other information that data brokers have access to that is incredibly concerning to us is utility bills. So for example, we have evidence from Austin, Texas that shows how ICE agents were able to get information about people's utilities through data brokers in the Fusion Center and from there conducted you know, operations in different places. And so what that means is that, you know, if you're an undocumented immigrant, you're literally having to decide between who knows if someone's going to have your address and whether or not your children should have electricity. Um, and this is an important, impossible choice for a lot of people, but because of how data brokers have access to information everywhere, that's one of the places where it can be incredibly vulnerable. And the last place that I'll say is the Office of Motor Vehicles. There's many states that have you know, for example, offer driver's licenses to people who are undocumented or who rely on people to pay their registration and their insurance and all of those things through that. And many times data brokers have access to information from the Office of Motor Vehicles and can therefore share it through ICE through those, those places. Um, so it's one of the areas where, again, we're doing more research to be able to, be able to be more precise about who has access to what, but it's an area of tremendous concern. Yeah, basically, one of the ways that it works is, you know, the utilities are struggling to survive, to do renovations, to up, do upgrades, maintenance, etc., etc. So, when a certain kind of uh, data brokerage company like Thomson Reuters goes to them and, and says, look, we can give you this much money for your data, you know, they're thinking the utility or or the car salesman dealership or the department for motor vehicles they're thinking oh this is going to be another stream of revenue which is going to allow us to do the upgrades to fix the roof or to upgrade the computer system against hackers or what have you and so they sell that data usually mostly for like peanuts for like near free by the way and then the data brokers multiply that by a factor of 10 or 100 sometimes. And then they go to others, intermediaries, or sometimes directly to companies such as Palantir, or sometimes directly to companies who want to sell us stuff, right? Because that, that's not only intelligence, uh, valuable information with respect to, you know, intelligence or law enforcement, but also for business. Uh, to sell people stuff, right? So if you if you just got a lot driver's license, for example, chances are you may want to buy a car next. You need an insurance. That's valuable information if you're in that kind of business, etc. Right? So so this is how the 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 whole system works from the ground up. And of course, 
the user, the end user is totally unaware that their information is being collected in the first place, that it's being sold in the second place, and it's being used in all kinds of ways in the third place. And this is where, of course, a company such as Clearview, for example, comes in. And in the most kind of callous and, and sort of like, uh, I don't even uh, have the right word here right now, but, but sort of like, uh, obvious and blatant way decides to basically scrape off everything they can find off the internet about any single person. And then they came on the record a few months ago that they had 22,000 uh, or 2,200 international law enforcement and intelligence agencies as their clients, supposedly. And we don't even know how many uh, uh, clients they have who are just trialing, non-paying clients, as they call them, who are just trialing the software, which who, who can basically use it, but without payment and, and therefore without much paperwork, by the way. Uh, do you know or can you say to us anything about Clearview AI? Because the good news about the bad news about Clearview AI is that now they were being sued by pretty much all the other big tech companies like Facebook and Google, who are not happy about the third company scooping and, and, and scraping off the data of their users? Well, well you know, like I want to say one last thing about Thomson Reuters and sure, then we're going to sure. this about uh, uh, Clearview AI. Sure. So to me, I think I just wanted to highlight two things about Thomson Reuters where it's like, they're not only the data broker, right? Selling all of this information, like you're saying, but Thomson Reuters Special Services actually has agents that are sitting within ICE to review that data and actually create target lists that then ICE uses to go out in the uh, out to do their raids. And so we've actually had cases, for example, where a federal judge ordered operations unconstitutional, but ICE still had their prepared target list. Thomson Reuters was there sitting there holding their hand creating those. And going back to this revolving door between the agencies, you know, the CEO of Thompson Reuters Special Services sits on the ICE Foundation and actually was part of founding HSI. So again, you see the cycle where people will both be creating the policy and creating the plans and then coming to the company, creating the services and then go back and forth. And so it's something that's been, you know, present, for example, with the incarceration industry for a very long time, you right. know, folks that are part of GEO and CCA, these private prison companies, have worked for the government to get these contracts right. for a while. We're just seeing the same cycle start to play out with some of these, you know, uh, tech and data companies. And so then that brings us to Clearview AI, which is a company that is incredibly terrifying. Um, you know, sometimes we talk about some of these big tech companies, they're worrisome because of their size. Clearview AI is a good example of it doesn't matter if it's one or two people the company can equally have a tremendous amount of power um, uh, that if, you know, that can go unaccounted for, right, in terms of having any sort of intervention that's possible. Um, Clearview AI has really changed the panorama in terms of what facial recognition technology looks like in the hands of these agencies. Um, the other trend that you're pointing to of offering free samples or free services is something that tech companies have been doing for a very long time. When I think, for example, of Palantir's predictive policing software, um, because they knew that they wouldn't be able to pass it through city council in New Orleans, 
they actually curtailed that and donated the services to the mayor to then be able to implement that surveillance program in the city without anybody knowing it even existed. Um, and so you actually have this pattern of people saying, I'll offer you a free sample, knowing that that way I'll either get into your system, understand more, or you'll start to use it. And then because you can only use my program, then that means that later on I can charge you more for the contract. And then um, they use that as a sales pitch to other cities, by the way, saying, look, New Orleans is already using it without mentioning that it was donated for free. So they say, look, New Orleans is already using our software. You should do the same. And, you know, Clearview and many companies are starting to become, and part of the reason why they're experimenting with their technologies in ICE is because, because deportations are considered, quote unquote, a civil offense. And many people who are deported might have had past immigration history, which means they already have a deportation order, which means that they don't have the right to go to court. That means that most of the surveillance and policing tactics they use never will actually have to see a day in court to make sure that they were constitutionally obtained. Which means so, they can do whatever they want because there's no oversight. If you if you go in, if you're like watching Law and Order, right, or you're watching a crime show, you think, ooh, they found the shoe. Now they have to bring it into court and use it as evidence. And so they have to prove how they got that evidence and that it was constitutionally obtained. ICE rarely has to do that. And so having access to, for example, Clearview's database, they might just still have it as a sample or might still have it as an application on their phone. We don't know, but how they use that information also probably will never see the day of light in court, which means again, that they can use it in whichever way or shape or form they want to. Um, so they might be using it in their field right now. And until we catch them in the act, there's actually no form of actually understanding how they're using it. And that makes it even scarier because, you know, we saw, for example, like the way that, that the New York Police Department was using Clearview AI. You have a ton of police officers with a huge record of surveilling their ex-girlfriends or people they think are cute in a bar or whatever way they want to abuse their power. Um, and so now having them have not a contract with the police department, but an individual application that you have on your phone kind of allows fertile ground for the type of abuse that so many communities have been ringing the bell about for so long. Yeah, it's basically designed to supersede any oversight or legal impediments and just rife for abuse. But by the way, uh, I don't know if you're aware, but today, only today, there's a new documentary on Netflix that came out today. And it's a six-part, six-hour series documentary called Immigration Nation. It's a fantastic documentary, 100% about ICE, uh, with actual footage uh, with the people uh, telling the stories of people working for ICE and the stories of people being arrested by ICE. Uh, I was, because it only came out today, this morning, I was only able to watch the first one hour, the first part, and it, there's five more hours to watch. But I highly recommend it. It's uh, it's not easy to watch. Uh, it's 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 hard to watch, uh, but it's uh, definitely worth it. And it would provide a lot of sort of real life uh, stories to what we're discussing uh, with you right now. Uh, and I'm curious to see uh, what's going to come up in in the other five episodes of that. Uh, are are you aware of that documentary by any chance? 
I'm aware of it. I haven't watched it. Um, I'm very excited to, to binge on it as soon as I am able. Yeah, yeah. It came only today, so I, I, I only saw the first part. Okay, anyway, so very well. Well, uh, Jacinta, we've been talking for about an hour and 30 minutes so far, and, and I'm loving our conversation. I think it's uh, very illuminating. But the question then is twofold. Most of my audience uh, are geeks, and a very large part of them are tech geeks who work in tech, whether it's IT or software engineers and so on. So let's first ask the question from their point of view and then from the general point of view. So, okay, let's say someone who works in Silicon Valley in the tech industry, as many of my listeners do. They would say, okay, Hasinda, let's say I agree with you about the ethics or the lack thereof in those companies. And, you know, I happen to work for Microsoft or I happen to work for Google. By the way, we didn't discuss Google yet, but, you know, People know about Google Maven as one of many, many examples of what Google has been doing uh, in terms of creating software for uh, drone targeting, et cetera, et cetera. Just one of many examples. Uh, so what can someone working in tech actually do if they find that, you know, this is unethical and yet they don't want to lose their job? What should they do? You know, I... I... As, as I described at the beginning of this, I am an organizer. And so I really do believe in the power of what happens when people come together and start to collectively take action. Um, we're able to build up power and change things that might not have seemed possible before. And so I don't think that there's necessarily things that individual people can sometimes do. Well, there, there, there are things that people can do. But the things that are most powerful happen when we start to do things collectively. So you spoke before about a letter of, of Microsoft employees to their bosses. Um, there has been letter, there have been letters like that in multiple tech companies um, about a variety of different issues. And tech workers have been bringing this up with their CEOs in different meetings and different spaces. Those things have had a real difference, have made a real difference, and have really shifted the conversation in a lot of ways. How far people want to push things is an individual question. Yeah. I have organized with undocumented workers who are willing to do civil disobedience action and be willing to be deported because they know that if they don't talk about this, no one else will and nothing will change. I have worked with folks in rural Mexico that know that if they don't organize against the mine that is coming to take away their water, no one else will. And there, they're not worried about losing, about being deported or about, you know, losing their land. They're actually worried about losing their life. And people are willing to organize. The question of what tech workers are willing to do is up to tech workers. Um, the examples throughout history of what is possible when people organize and people take brave, defiant action are incredible. Um, you know, what tech workers were able to do shutting down Project Maven, what tech workers have been able to do walking out of their workplaces has actually really been substantial. Um, and I can tell you that when, for example, we're talking to investors or when we're talking to other actors like banks in all of this, because we are, we're talking to them too about the human rights implications of their money, um, knowing that there's worker opposition and knowing that there's worker organizing happening against these policies internally within these companies is very, very powerful 
and can really help shift things. So to be honest, I would predict that we're actually barely starting to have this conversation. Um, I think it's only going to get worse as time comes on because I think that the wealth disparities, the power disparities are gonna become greater. I think climate change is going to create a whole different conversation around migration and access to resources. And I think that folks are really going to have to think about very critically, what side are you on? And how are you taking action? And how are you participating in transforming the role of tech and data in our society? Because it's not about saying we should not have it. It's about how are we using it um, in a way that actually is not promoting the power structures that make people continue to be you know, marginalized and at the hands of violence, but actually how are we using it to actually create more justice and more equity in our society? Um, and so it, it's gonna depend on workers. You know, if, if your main fear is losing your job, well, take a look around. There's a lot of people who have lost their job in the last couple of months. Um, and folks are still able to, through a lot of difficulty, figure out ways of surviving. And so I actually think it is a, a very personal question, um, but it is also a collective question in terms of the only way we're going to change this is if we take collective action. And sometimes that makes means individual risk, but we have to kind of be able to put it in a historical historic perspective. Yeah, and there's many, many good examples, Project Maven being one of them. Uh, also, uh, Amazon employees pushing Jeff Bezos to take action on climate change. Uh, even though we have many negative examples, people both from Google and from Amazon trying to organize being fired for it uh, or being let go and stuff. And, and you know, you have to see it from, from their point of view. Uh, you know, I forget the number, but when I was there, the average salary in Silicon Valley was over $200,000. Today, it's maybe, I think, quarter of a million, $250,000 per year if you work for the big ones like Google, Facebook uh microsoft etc uh, and and you know people have families mortgages houses they are very expensive they want to send their kids to school which is very expensive and they feel like they're trapped they feel like they have no choice uh, and and we go back to to your point about what's the kind of price you're willing to pay for the world that that you you believe is important to work towards or to create or 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 to avoid the things that are scary and 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 dangerous uh, or uh, undesirable for our future um yeah and, and it's it's a personal choice but but let's ask that question from a different point of view from people who are not in the tech industry because there's also those people from my audience who would say look i am european uh, or something like that, because I have uh, big audiences all over Europe, like in Germany, especially, is I think number five. Uh, England is number three, probably. Lots of Canadians from Scandinavia, and they would say, look, I'm not in the tech, I'm not a tech professional, and I'm not even American. So what can I do? Uh, what, what should I do? And should I even do anything? Should I care about the fact that you know the United States has created this organization, which is abusing you know uh, immigrants from Latin or South America trying to immigrate in the United States, and then more recently abusing their own population, which is protesting for a diversity of reasons against their local or federal governments. What should we tell those people? Why should they care? Why should they get involved? And how can they do so? 
Well, they should care because they, they have the same problems. Um, you know, folks that are in Europe are seeing a very, very similar system. You're talking about the UK, you're talking about Germany. These are actually places where police departments also have contracts with Palantir. You're talking about the context of the UK. Um, the health data is also in the hands of Palantir there. And there's actually a parliamentary uh, petition that is being organized by a group, group called No Tech for Tyrants. We call ourselves No Tech for Ice. They call themselves No Tech for Tyrants. You know, they're also doing a petition to try to understand about Palantir's contracts there and what the implications are going to be. Um, what we're seeing in terms of, you know, the type of attitude that ICE takes towards migration, where it has created a militarized border, where it has created a police force that has both surveillance and other types of tactics at its disposal, where they have created a huge uh, detention system and deportation system, is actually very similar to most um, developed, quote unquote, developed countries or first world countries um, in different parts of, of the world. And I would say that, again, as we see the world start to be impacted greater and greater by climate change, that you are going to see more and more people be forced. You want to talk about being stuck. Being stuck is not feeling dependent on your $250,000 job in the Bay. <laughs> being stuck is living in rural Guatemala and knowing that if you don't migrate, you can't feed your children and they will die with you. That's being stuck. And more and more people are going to be actually stuck and having to migrate in different ways. And these surveillance and militarized border systems are actually what's going to be keeping people out. So we actually have to have the, 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 the long-term vision to be able to see where this conversation is going, to understand what has to be shifted. Because, again, everyone's copying each other's policies, you know. HSI agents or ICE agents are going to Israel to be trained and then are going to different parts of the world to talk about how that's the model. And now that's the model at the southern border of Mexico. All of these conversations are constantly happening. And so similarly, unless we're talking about better protections from our, our federal governments, unless we're talking about being able to decriminalize migration and offer people abilities to respond to economic and climate crisis, unless we're able to kind of create these sort of infrastructures for, to protect people, we're going to be in the same problem, but worse consistently. And so this is less about why should you care, but this is more of an opportunity to care and get involved in shaping the solution before we're in a position where we're unable to kind of turn certain things back and recalibrate power in different ways. And so, you know, I think that's why it's, it's really a, a, a rally call to all of us. When we talk about the No Tech for Ice campaign, it's not just about organizing immigrants. It's actually about organizing the Latinx community. It's talking about organizing the immigrant community. It's actually about organizing students, tech workers, investors, academics. We all have a role to play in this. And so if we just think that the one thing that we're going to do is going to change things, we're going to get kind of uh, demotivated very quickly. But if we understand that we're all in part of a one conversation and one, one movement together, then we're actually able to see how we can build off of each other. Mm -hmm. And by the way, that uh, the website of, of that kind of uh, campaign that you're just mentioning is uh, notechforice.com, right? Yeah. yeah that's okay, so, so uh, this is perhaps where you should tell us a little bit more about what is Mijente and how can people uh, get involved with it? 
Well, Mi Gente is, a, is an organization. We're a national membership network of Latina and Chicane people that are organizing for racial, gender, economic, and climate justice. And so we have um, members across the U.S. that are organizing around different issues. We also have members in Puerto Rico. Um, and for us, it's really about creating a, a, a movement that we know that doesn't have to just be pro-Latinx, but actually has to be pro-Black, pro-women, pro-trans, pro-planet, um, pro-immigrant, because our communities are all of those things, and we actually have to be fighting on, on many, many fronts. So if folks want to get involved, they can go to our website, mihente.net. Um, if folks want to get involved um, in getting Trump out of office this election, they can go to fortatrump.com. Um, and if folks want to be learning about our campaign um, around the tech and data companies fueling deportations, they can go to notechforice.com to get more information there. And if there are folks that are listening that are, are Latina and Chicane and say, that sounds like me, um, then we recommend that they sign up as, as members and uh, become involved in, in the organization. Um, and for other folks that can sign on to our membership list, there's ways of making donations. For us, again, like the campaign work includes all of us. And so there are many people that we that we are in movement with, that we're in fight with, that aren't Latinx. Fantastic. By the way, as a side note, uh, am I inventing this right now? But was it not the case that Palantir was somehow involved in uh, enforcing or surveilling the southern border of uh, Fortress Europe, that's to say the Mediterranean, from migrants from Northern Africa and the Middle East. Do you know I'm anything not... about that? Because it just popped into my mind that I read somewhere I thought Palantir was involved there too. I don't know any specifics on that, but I do know that in a lot of places, both in terms of monitoring aid and monitoring global migration patterns, Palantir has shown an interest in that. And so to me, it, it, it points back to this conversation around you know, Peter Thiel, like he already has his bunker because he's thought this stuff out. Like in New, it's Zealand. Not he, in New Zealand, it's not that he just like randomly was like, let me think about what the place is. Like there is actually a lot of science and a lot of thought behind how they're thinking about these things um, and how they're preparing for that type of reality. And it really is because they don't believe that other people's lives are worth much. And so they, they understand what, yeah, how, how they're sort of setting that up. Um, and so I think it's actually important for us to not just listen to what they're saying, but what they're doing. And what they're doing points to understanding how this power uh, difference is going to manifest in terms of society. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So, of course, I agree completely with you. But, you know, we've been talking here for an hour and 45 minutes, give or take. And I'm just wondering, what's the final message that you would like uh, or before that, let me ask you, what's the best place for people to find more about you and your work, personally? If they want to follow you, what's the best place? Um, the best place is to, to follow us at Twitter, at Con Mi Gente, um, or you can go to the website. I mean, we really do actually keep a lot of our resources and information and things on the website so that folks have kind of a way of readily available for them to participate and plug in. Again, if you're a student and you want to protest recruitment on your campus, that's a place where you can go. If you're an investor and want to read about the investor briefings we've put out, that's a place where you can go. If you're an attorney and want to organize you know, more lawyers against Thomson Reuters and LexisNexis, 
um, you, that's where you can go. We have a shareholder resolution um, that we're going to be trying for a second year against that company. Um, so there's a bunch of things of just like how to plug in. The, the, the website is the best place, but to stay in touch, Twitter is, is a good place where you can reach us at Gonmijente, C-O-N-M-I-J-E-N-T-E. Fantastic. So then we come to the bottom line, the final question. What's the most important thing or single message that you want to send us away with today? I, I have to bring it back to organizing. Organizing at the end of the day really is about relationships with one another and how we can build power collectively. So, you know, when we talk about, for example, the power that tech and data have right now, both in terms of affecting our democracy, our economy, our policing system, the only way we can shape it is through organizing. And the only way we can organize is if we have relationships with one another. So that's why we're so excited to have this conversation with you. This is why we want to continue to reach out to more people, because it is actually the human connection that we have with each other that lets us kind of form these relationships that let us think about how we can transform the system. And so even though this is incredibly overwhelming, even though there are so many people that are hurting at the hands of how tech and data is being used by police and ICE, um, we also know that this can be the start of a different conversation to create a different proposal of how this can work. Um, so that it can actually benefit us and not continue to replicate racist systems that are keeping folks down. So in other words, organizing is the key to resistance or to changing the system. Yes, 100% I agree with that. Yeah, uh, and I wonder why or how it works nowadays. I mean, uh, it's it's a lot more trickier nowadays in the in the age of COVID, right? Because personally, I make my living as a keynote speaker. And I've always preferred, and I've always been no tech. So I talk about the most advanced technology in the world when I go to a keynote somewhere. I never use PowerPoint. I never use any tech whatsoever. Because to me, at first, I'm old school. I'm like Socrates. But secondly, uh, I believe that's the most valuable connection that we can have. And I don't want to lose that opportunity with some kind of technological distractions and gadgets and slides. I want to connect with the people that I have the privilege and the honor to be in front of. And, you know, now with COVID, that business is kind of pretty much been dead. So I have to adapt online and all of that. And I'm really resisting that despite of what I do and despite the fact that I've been online for 11 years in many ways. So I wonder how is that COVID-19 now throwing, you know, a, a stick into the spokes of organizing, which has been generally one-on-one, uh, -on -one, and especially in the case where you have the all-seeing eye of Palantir everywhere online, which you would use to organize now that you're limited to doing that, not in person, but basically virtually. You know, COVID, COVID has made everything harder, right? We're all dealing with the challenges. It's, it's not something that's easy. It's not something that's simple. Um, I, like many people, am craving the day that we can have another in-person meeting and actually, you know, receive people at the door with hugs and do all of the things that are, are so ingrained in, in our organizing culture. Um, but I, you know, at the end of the day, our relationships with each other aren't just contingent on having in-person contact. It is actually about the relationship with each other. Um, a lot of us work remotely, have been working remotely for a long time. That doesn't mean that our relationships with our coworkers are any less deep 
or any less important or any less significant. So to me, it is actually about like building deep relationships that can actually go the extra mile. And so sometimes with technology, we can actually, we can actually do that and we can use it to actually build networks that go farther than just our immediate communities. Um, and that's one of the things that I think is kind of exciting about this is like, how do we actually use technologies to still form really deep, meaningful connections and don't just continue to like rely on headlines or rely on, you know, a, a direct message here or there, but actually take the time to continue to build with each other and kind of continue to take that risk. And in terms of surveillance, I mean, I think we know that everything we are doing online is being tracked. But what history teaches us is that everything we do in person is also being tracked. And so when we think about the first surveillance or the first type of, you know, when you think of, for example, how the FBI was trying to shut down the civil rights movement, they might not have been monitoring people's emails. They were infiltrating people's meetings. And they still do that. They still do that to this day. So for us, again, it's been important to understand that tech and data aren't new problems. They're just exasperating old relationships and old problems that we've been dragging around for decades. And so, you know, the way that we actually intervene against that is, again, strong relationships. If we know who our people are and we've been fighting together for a very long time and we are honest with each other about what we're doing and how we're doing it, you're actually able to have a stronger movement that can't be infiltrated, whether it's with an ICE agent or an FBI agent physically in the room with you, or if it's through a camera that's watching everything you say. Um, it is actually about leading in a way that will allow us to, again, make meaningful connection with human beings while at the same time transforming the conversation. Yeah, I remember two days after Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech in Washington, which, by the way, is considered to be the best keynote speech of the 20th century or something like that. Only a couple of days later, uh, the head of the FBI pronounced him to be as enemy number one or the most dangerous person in America, right? Uh, so I, I wonder for you, uh, you've been arrested, uh, you've been detained. Um, do you use any precautions? Do you use, for example, encryption of some kind? What kind of tools or platforms uh, you use to avoid uh, or at least diminish the chance of surveillance and at least to not make the job of, of ICE or volunteer or anyone who may want to surveil you easier? No, we, we, we like many organizers, participate in, and we try to have the same way, we try to have good sanitary practices, we try to have good protection policies um, in terms of how we use technology, try to use, you know, encrypted text messages, et cetera. But, you know, we, we recently did a webinar with, with Edward Snowden and Naomi Klein. I watched and, it. It was fantastic. You know, and, and, and Edward Snowden said something that I, I've, I was like, oh, finally, like, this is what it here seems like to have someone else say it. But it's like, these are billion dollar, like multi-billion dollar companies that we're expecting like grassroots organizers to out tech. Like, it's not going to ever happen. And so there has to be a kind of very practical assumption of I will protect certain things, but there actually also has to be an understanding that we are all vulnerable to these types of surveillance and that they do have access to it. And that just is like the nature of a David versus Goliath fight. You know, folks always ask me, like, why did you take on Palantir? <laughs> why did you decide to do a public campaign? And of course, it's, it's, it's terrifying. There is not a single day that goes by that we do not think about what the consequences would be. 
and that we understand that the consequences could be that they could destroy our entire organization. But what we know is that they can't destroy our relationships with each other. And so that really is the, the strengthening element of this, where it's like, they might be able to take one realm of thing, but as long as we're also building the other realm where our relationships and our ideas are strong and connected, then that gives us an extra element of protection because whenever they're able to silence us, whenever they're able to make us be fearful, wherever they're able to make us not want to take to the streets, that's when they've actually won because they've taken away our ability to fight back. And so for us, it's we have to take on the, the, the worst of the worst. We have to go into the streets in the moments where it's, it's needed the most. Um, and we have to continue to invest in each other because that's the only thing that's gonna save us if we are attacked. Yeah, I wish you the best because that's really David versus Goliath is a very poor and insufficient way to show the discrepancy between you and Palantir because I know they're super smart. I know they're super motivated. They're super focused. They're filthy rich. They're vengeful. Uh, they're merciless. <laughs> and, you know, uh, they're scary as hell. Uh, and, 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 you know, the... Uh, Recently, maybe about six months ago, I reread a bunch of dystopian science fiction novels such as uh, 1984, because uh, I was doing a keynote called uh, Dark Futures. And uh, the scary part of 1984 is that it finished with that relationship between the two main protagonists being destroyed. And it finished with kind of like this kind of dystopian end where those people who had the power, the tech, uh, the surveillance, the, the money, the resources completely won and obliterated any resistance. Uh, and, and yeah, so that, <laughs> that's why it's dystopian and very depressing. But, but I'm really impressed by the courage of people like you, you know, because I've met some of those people and, and I've been to some of those companies and I, and I, I tell you, they're filthy rich. They have resources that, I'm sure that uh, their lunch bill is bigger than than your annual uh, <laughs> revenue or something like that, right? So I, I honestly wish you good luck. I, I appreciate that. You know, we, we had to find a, a, a company that would kind of live up to ICE's reputation. Um, and so when we thought of who was, who was, who was a company that had an evil enough reputation to kind of really show what is the problem of working with an agency as evil as ICE? We kind of felt like they were a match. Um, and so, you know, the, the bravery that I try to have is, is nothing compared to the bravery of, of, of undocumented folks that are actually facing the system every day and are still willing to speak up, that are still willing to go and door knock, that are still willing to go to community meetings, that are still willing to speak openly in the press even though they, they know that, you know, Trump's administration and Trump's police force and Trump's corporate partners are all going to go after them. And so the, the least that we can do is, is fight next to them and, and stand alongside them. Um, because if we don't do it, who will? Um, and, you know, really all of society requires this fight in this moment. And so we just have to keep going on. Yeah. And, you know, I forget where I was reading this some time ago, but basically it came down to this, that the measure of a person or an organization in this case is quite often encapsulated best by the task, the challenge or the enemy that they 
target. So the greater the challenge, the task or the enemy, the bigger the discrepancy, the bigger the Goliath, you know, the, the better it speaks about who you are inside. Uh, and I'm one of those crazy philosophers who thinks that ethics is one of those things that should be done, whether it pays off or not, uh, and, and whether you would win or lose. You should do it just because it's the right thing to be done. Uh, and then history shows that so many times in so many cases, we are shocked how David actually takes down Goliath. So uh, we should never be totally pessimistic. We should be realistic and aware that this is a merciless fight and it's unequal and never will be. But but we should also believe that the good, good outcome, positive outcome is possible. So I commend you for what you do. And I really appreciate the last two hours of uh, our conversation and, and you enlightening us and illuminating us, not only about how ICE works uh, with respect to immigration and Palantir being a crucial part of it, but also how it translates into uh, normal people's lives. And by normal, I mean uh, people who don't have issues with immigration, people who work in tech industries, or people who even work and live across the world in Europe or other places who are not under President Donald Trump and who don't have ICE in the same way that the United States does. So thank you very much for that, Jacinta. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for, for allowing this much time to really get I, I love that you said at the beginning, I really want to go down into the rabbit hole and, and I, I hope that we, we did that. And yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity and, and looking forward to, to being in touch. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. 